Good morning, all. Can you hear me clearly? Yeah, if you want to. There's a question. Do we want to? Do we? Steve again. Pardon? Today, does anyone turn to Luke chapter 13, first of all, while I'm chatting? It's where we're going to be reading from, beginning of Luke chapter 13. Today, I want to talk about karma, because that's a strong Christian theme we haven't talked about enough, obviously. Uh, no, karma is a, it's a common belief, even in our part of the world, isn't it? While even the large majority of us Brits, we're, we are not ethnically rooted in Far Eastern philosophy, nevertheless, there is this still this running thread that if you do bad, bad will come back to bite you. And if you do good, you'll get good things. That whole kind of... Uh, even like thinking, well, that person did that, but how come they've got life so easy? Or that person is so lovely, how come they've got it so tough? Sometimes that can be that kind of thinking in our, in our kind of British society. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, that kind of question arises. There remains this desire for, or an actual belief in... It's really boomy, isn't it? Is it all echoing? I think I'm, I'm, not, I'm not mixing on the case, it's all right. But, um, um, there's this kind of desire to believe in a mathematical formula, if you like, that keeps things clinically easy. That there's like this set of scales where it balances out, um, it kind of balances the books and decides whether you should or shouldn't deserve good things or bad things in life. There's this kind of feeling, it's like, but they're like that, so why have they got life like that? I mean, just the other day on Facebook, I... Um, that, there was a story about an acquaintance of mine. So a friend of mine on Facebook, they and other friends were talking about what's happened to one of their acquaintances where this other person, they've been treated really badly, but it was an absolute perfect mirror of how they, that individual themselves, had acted a few years previously. And someone had commented, gloating, karma at its best. That was the, that was the theme. So see how they reacted then? They're now on the receiving end of the same kind of treatment this time round, and and so it comes. There is this common belief in something bigger than us that clearly has agency and personality because it decides it, the universe, God of whatever kind, God's decides who is worthy or not of treasures or trauma. People want to believe in this, and Jesus has plenty to say about this. He really does. Um, you may not think Jesus will comment on karma, but while he doesn't actually use that word, he does nevertheless speak into it. And today's passage is all about this. Because in the ancient world, 2,000 years ago at least, people thought of, um, they never thought of God or the gods as being uninvolved, nor did they consider God or the gods to be too weak or unable to get involved if they wanted to. They always believed that God was involved and that when bad things happened to people, it was because it was a judgment on them. And it was because of their behavior or because of their sin. They, people believe there was a direct correlation. You sin, you're going to get bad stuff at some point. And Jesus is actually quick to ensure that we, and uh, they and therefore we, understand otherwise. That there's something else going on behind the scenes. And what it does, it helps us in two ways, which will remind us at the end. Firstly, understanding that that is not how things operate, and that is not how God operates, essentially, while we live in this earth, live in, live in this life. Firstly, therefore, as we understand that new mindset, it helps us break free from this deserving notion, who deserves this and who deserves that, who deserves good, who deserves bad, 
the blessings and the cursings of life. Now, am I good enough? Have I done too much bad and I've got bad coming? It helps us break free from that, but also, therefore, it helps us walk through the blessed times with an absolute sense of conscious gratitude and humility, but also helps us walk through the hard times, which we can't always avoid, but we can walk through them with a very secure hope and a peace that we find in him. It changes things. It dramatically changes things for us. Who would like more of that? Yeah? Yeah, of course we would. So let's see what Jesus says on the subject. We've got the first nine verses of Luke 13 to look at today. I'm going to do them in two chunks. So we're just going to read the first five verses first. Luke 13, verses 1 to 5. And it says this. There were some present at that very time who told him, Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, he continues, those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, what Jesus is doing here, he's, he's, giving, he's, he's led into conversation by other people, bringing it up, in fact. They're trying to trap him. And um, they, we have two real-life examples given here about this very subject, about karma, about who should or shouldn't deserve tragedy. These are two real tragedies where people have been victims to other people's evil. Either the first one talks about the Galileans and Pilate. We'll talk about that story in a minute. Um, that's a premeditated thing where the evil of man and his men have commi- has committed evil on other people and they've been victims at, at, their, at their mercy. Or it talks about this tower that falls over. That's the kind of thing that's due to human negligence. It's another kind of evil. It's, it's, a, it's a lack of, of human care. Effectively, things do fall over, but generally things like that fall over because they weren't built well. Uh, it's no mention of an earthquake here. This, this building just fell. That's down to negligence, and it wasn't built right. And for us today, the, these two types of um, you know, people being victims of, of humanity's error or evil, there'll be um, the first one, like Pilate and the Galileans, like I say, we'll talk about that in a sec. But that for us today, it'd be like uh, we have the terrorist attacks at London Bridge, or the bombing at Manchester Arena, that is man's premeditated evil, which resulted in many, you know, kind of in, effectively innocent victims in that res- respect. Or in, uh, it was in 1996, the Dunblane Massacre, with the, the shooting, the mass shooting in the primary school. That is man's premeditated evil, and there were many victims. But then the story about the tower, uh, when it comes down to negligence, there's things like the Hillsborough Football Stadium, um, where many people die because of, a lack of crowd control, effective crowd control. Many people got crushed. And that was, that was human negligence, wasn't it? Or, more recently, Grenfell Tower. That was human negligence, which led to many lives being lost. These are all absolute, all of them, absolute abhorrent tragedies, regardless of where the blame lies. And Jesus talks about two from his day. So let's just take a closer look at them, shall we? The first one that gets mentioned, the first one, there were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Now, we don't find a, se- a separate recording of this in other kind of secular um, history books um, at the time, but it's not without precedent. 
not without precedent at all. Josephus is a, is a historian from that time period, and he alone records five separate incidents that are very much like this, very similar kind of incidents, including you know, with Pilate being involved. It's just, just that these kind of incidents were a common feature of life in Israel under Roman rule. For example, there was one time when Pilate, who gets mentioned, Pontius Pilate is the same guy later on with Jesus' arrest. It's the same guy as the Roman governor of Judea. And he wanted to build an aqueduct. This is a period just shortly before Jesus started his ministry. So just a few years earlier, Pilate wanted to build an aqueduct from the pools of Solomon, which are ancient reservoirs near Bethlehem. You can still visit them today. He wanted to divert, to divert water from there to the city centre, into the middle of Jerusalem, some 20 kilometres away. So he wanted to build a great aqueduct to divert this water into the city centre. And therefore, it needed a lot of funding. It needed a big budget, needed lots of money. So where did he get that money from? Pilate demanded this money to come from the temple treasury. And rightly so, that money had been set aside for God and the people were outraged. So they sent a, a delegation, the, the common people sent a large delegation to Pilate to demand this money back. Like, that money, that is for holy purposes. That is set aside for God, for the temple treasury. That is for holy purposes. It's, it's not for some over-budgeted vanity project. That's not what it's there for. This is, this is money set aside for God. How dare you? And by the, by the end of it, some 10,000 protesters had amassed, protesting against Pilate's aqueduct plan and where he's getting this money from. So what did Pilate do? He sent some of his soldiers, disguised as common folk, to mingle in the protesting crowd. And when they received a right, certain signal from him, they attacked the protesters with clubs and daggers, and many, many people were killed. That was his response to their protest. See, Pilate was not averse to slaughtering Jewish worshippers when things didn't go his way. So now coming back to this story that, that is being talked about, that's clearly known to the people around Jesus at the time, and they go, Jesus, have you heard about this? There's something that happened. The, the Gospels are equally, uh, more valid, more authenticated history books than any other uh, on, a document on this planet. So these are history books. Just because it doesn't happen in other history books doesn't mean it didn't happen, but we've already seen that this kind of thing did happen on a regular basis. This is just another one. And they hear about these Galileans. Now, Galileans, they are not people from Galilee that are getting mentioned here. These are the followers of Judas of Galilee. That's why they're called the Galileans. And they were quite a, a zealous sect who were always rebelling against the Romans because they were fed up with it. That's who, that's who the Galileans are. They were quite a seditious bunch. And, of course, that rankled Pilate. Now, the other, the other thing to note is that the Galileans, they belong to Herod's jurisdiction. Herod is the, is the king of Judea the Hebrew, the Jewish king of Judea. And he is acting under Roman approval. So you've got Pilate, you've got Herod, and you've got the, the Jewish people, including the Galileans. To the, to the point when Jesus gets arrested later on, just to help explain that, Jesus is brought in front of Pontius Pilate. And what does Pontius Pilate do? He goes, oh, Jesus is one of them. He's, he's under Herod's jurisdiction. I'll wash my hands of this sticky situation and send Jesus to Herod instead, doesn't he? That's what he does. Herod very quickly goes, I'm having nothing to do with this, and sends him back to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate just gets to this return to sender. So I'm having nothing to do with this either. They keep trying to wash their hands of this sticky situation when Jesus gets arrested. 
So here, that's how Herod and Pontius Pilate worked. So here we've got the Galileans who are like, we're ruled by Herod, not by you. And Pilate's going, but I rule over Herod, so therefore do as I say. They are clearly not friends. And now it appears that at some point, Pilate, who is happy, we've already heard, happy to endorse violence to get his own way, he has had his men murder a number of these Galileans while they were worshipping at the temple. And how do we know that? Because it says here that Pilate had mingled their blood with their sacrifices. See, it happened in the, in the sacred place of Jewish worship. And as they were sacrificing their animals and that blood was already being spilt, their own blood got mixed with it. It happened there. There's a God-fearers while worshipping, was slaughtered by a Roman ruler with zero scruples. And then Jesus asks, as this story is brought up, Jesus just asks, do you think they were worse sinners than any of their other Galilean peers because they're the ones that suffered like that? And to the Jewish mindset, like I say, tragic events were a result of sin. It's a just Jewish version of karma. And Jesus renounces that. So when he asks, do you think there are any worse sinners because they were, that's how they died? He's saying absolutely, categorically, not. That is not true. And then he goes straight away. But unless you repent, you'll perish as well. He turns it straight back to them. He literally says, everyone's in the same boat. And everyone may face a different aspect of life's brokenness at any given moment. And everyone will face death of some kind at some point. But everyone is destined to perish. That's what he says. Now, in here, to, to perish, we think, well, they've already died. To perish means to never be rescued. That's what perish means. John chapter 3, verse 16, the classic verse. For God so loved the world, yeah, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Perishing is never gaining eternal life. To perish is to be eternally lost it's the opposite of being saved and Jesus is saying unless you repent stop looking about who deserved that kind of death and that kind of death and who got away with it stop looking at that you're all in the same boat you're all destined to perish unless you repent and turn my way he's saying we are not a mixed bag of deserving and undeserving but all of us have fallen short and all of us without a rescue plan available only through repentance in him Without that, we were all otherwise destined to perish with a capital P. Every single human being on this planet at any moment. Regardless of who has committed more or fewer sinful acts, the point is we have all committed sinful acts. Therefore, we all have our own victims of our own actions, our own words, our own failures to act. We've all hurt people, haven't we? With the things we said, the things we've done, the things we've failed to do. We've all hurt people. We've all got victims. No matter how, how many times I've sinned compared to the next person, or what kind of sins they were, I've sinned. I've turned away from God many moments in my life. And Jesus is saying, we've all done that. And so we all, by our own actions, are destined to demise. So stop looking at who deserves what. You all deserve one thing, because you're all sinners. Now, that all sounds pretty grim, doesn't it? <laughs> and in many ways it is. But there is good news. And we can't always fully appreciate the good news until we realise how bad the bad news is. 
So let's just, before we move on to that, let's just look at this other incident that then gets mentioned that Jesus then brings up. After being asked about the Galileans, Jesus carries on in verse 4, doesn't he? He says, what about those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, he goes, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. See, so he's doing it again. He's already following up that sobering truth about, don't worry about the Galileans, <laughs> worry about yourself. He's doing it again with this other incident. That again, we can't find um, uh, recordings of this elsewhere. It's same again. It's not mentioned by historians that we have access to uh, these days. But this time, there's this still the story that pops up that Jesus mentions about, not about dying at the hands of murderous people, but instead it's something that will be considered an accident at best or criminal negligence um, at worst. Um, so here he's, he's talking about um, the Tower of Siloam. Now Siloam is um, just outside Jerusalem's city walls. On the southeast of the city walls is the Pool of Siloam. Now, that, we, we get that gets mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. In John chapter 9, is it when Jesus heals the blind man with the mud on his eyes? Jesus tells him to go and wash his eyes, wash the mud off in the pool of Siloam, which must have been just down the street, the nearest possible place to wash his eyes. That's where it is, the pool of Siloam. And even it, just interestingly, in the story, there's this blind man that Jesus is healing. And what are people saying about him? They're saying, is he blind because he's a sinner? Or was he born blind because his parents were sinners? That's the question that's being asked. And yet again, it's exactly the same question here. Does he deserve that because of sin? And Jesus is like, you are missing the point entirely. It's nothing to do with that. And that's, this is the same place, the pool of Siloam. And there's a tower here. So this tower, therefore, to have a tower built by a pool is something to do with waterworks again. So it sounds like something else that Pilate's been up to. But he, he loves his waterworks. And we've got this tower at Siloam. And... Uh, Jesus, again, he talks about this tower falling and killing 18 people. And again, what does he do? He flips the question, as he often does. Instead of giving his audience an, an easy soundbite answer to what is a far bigger philosophical question, Jesus straight away just turns it around and exposes the gospel. He goes, do you really think that these 18 people who died under that falling tower. Do you really think they were worse offenders than the people, than the people who were standing a few feet away and the rubble missed them? Saying, really, is that what you're saying? Because that is absolutely not true. That's false. That is not true. And immediately again, he shows us what is at stake, that calamities are not easily attributable to who should or shouldn't be on the receiving end of them, nor are they avoidable. These things do happen still. Life can have its awful downsides, and none of us, though, are immune by some kind of qualification to always miss them. It can happen to any of us. No one gets diplomatic immunity from Earth's horrors. And yes, there are consequences to our actions in life in as much as, you know, some people keep blaming, uh, blame, they keep blaming life for dealing them an unfair hand. I've always been on the receiving end of life's badness and all this kind of thing and life's been unfair to me and the rest of us at the time are thinking you have made some really silly choices <laughs> sometimes yeah sometimes the silly choices we make do come back and bite us that is different but in terms of the fact that for example the people who commit evil acts will always exist and therefore there will always be victims left in their wake that is always going to happen and accidents will always happen somewhere at some point 
no matter how much we perform risk assessments, no matter how much we have rigorous driving tests and great upright driving examiners, we need them. Building, uh, building regulations, building inspectors, we need these things. But ultimately, something at some point is going to happen. These things still happen. Fires, collapses, yeah, big car accidents, wherever it might be. None of that can be completely avoided. It is what it is. And the point that Jesus is making here is not that, it's not just that, well, it happens, so get on with it. He's also saying that it happens to people regardless of who they are, regardless of how much of a sinner they are or aren't. Now, Jesus makes this point elsewhere in a different way. In Matthew chapter 5, um, there's a comment, there's a verse you'll be familiar with, but Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, talking to another crowd, and he says, For he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. You see, even in that moment, he's talking to an agrarian society, which means that their economy was um, majorly dependent on on farming, on, on agriculture, on livestock, on crops, and so on. So weather was very important. And no matter what kind of a person a farmer was, no matter how good or bad, in quotes, he might be, his crops need the same amount of sun and rain as his neighbor's farm, for example. Yeah? And when the rain falls, it doesn't stop at a certain line of hedgerow, depending on how nice the farmer is, <laughs> does it? It just falls where it falls, doesn't it? When the round clouds come, the water, that water falls on the land regardless of ownership. Rain will fall where rain will fall. And we can nevertheless sometimes feel that we deserve things that we don't get, or we can get upset about that, or can get angry about other people seeming to get away with awful behavior again, and yet seem to continue living what we might call a charmed life. You know, we can get, they can, that can rile us up. But for starters, God is not blind to any of that. His, his eye does not miss any of that in a heartbeat. And he has a far bigger heart for justice and dealing with injustice than we can ever imagine or we can ever be capable of. We need to never forget that. And one day, any injustices that do remain in this life will be dealt with before his throne. And that's quite terrifying. He will deal with it. He's not immune to it. He's not uncaring about it. And he will deal with it. He is a God of justice and he will make sure justice is done. And God does intervene during this life. God does intervene in different situations miraculously. He does give relief and political turnaround and rescue for individuals and people groups and different situations. It does happen sometimes. Wonderfully. But in the meantime, God continues to send his sunshine and pour his rain on all people, both good and evil, as an example of, in fact, of him loving his enemies. That's what he's doing. It could be, well, beautiful sunshine for you, beautiful sunshine for you, not you. Uh, beautiful sunshine for you, definitely not you. He could be like that, couldn't he? But there is utter grace in how God conducts himself through this, despite it sometimes looking like the opposite. It can look a certain way to us and realize God is doing something wonderfully opposite in the middle of it. So, therefore, I'm going to look at verse 6 now, in Luke 13. Jesus, having opened this whole subject up through these two um, true stories, these, these events that's been happening at the time, 
He then proceeds to tell a parable about a fruitless fig tree. Let's see what he says. He goes straight in, verse 6, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit in this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he, the vine dresser, answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. See, in this story we have a, a, fri- a fig tree, this plant is fruitless. And the gardener decides to intervene. He decides to give this plant another chance. He he wants to invest in this plant that hasn't borne fruit for years. It's fully deserving to be chucked on the compost heap or to be burned, to be cut down. But instead, the gardener decides to to, um, give it extra time and sustenance. He wants to give it manure, give it fertilizer, give it what it needs, give give it a leg up, if you like. That's what he wants to do. And so hearing that story in the light of Jesus having already helped us realize that all of us are in the same boat, we are all equally able to receive whatever sunshine or rain comes our way, but also we're all equally deserving to perish. With that in mind, here we find a God who is willing to wait that little bit longer and give us a chance, give us some time to enter a new season of producing holy fruit, life with him. Despite us all deserving to perish, God is always willing to give us more time and more provision, fertilizer, more of the help we need that we can't do in our own strength to do so. Because every extra day you wake up, every extra day on this planet is God's grace for you and me. Every extra day you wake up, his mercies are new every morning, he let you wake up this morning. Therefore, he's still got plans, promises, purposes over you uh, for at least the next few hours, whatever might happen today. If you wake up tomorrow, it's his grace on you. You've got another day on this planet. And if you don't know him, every day is another chance to meet with him. Don't waste it. And if you do know him, every day is another chance to know him more. Don't waste it. But then this parable actually takes it from the personal that you are as doomed by your selfishness as the next person only turning to the great rescuer Jesus himself brings reprieve from perishing, brings eternal life but it also takes it away from that personal kind of level to the national level as well because the fig tree is a biblical metaphor for Israel for the nation themselves, for God's chosen set apart people And Jesus is also saying here that some reprieve, some extra time, is being given to Israel to see if there will be repentance. And if not, the axe will come. See, unless an individual repents, they will perish. And he's also saying here that unless Israel, God's own historically set apart people as a first fruit of the rest of us to come, that's what he was doing there, if even the nation of Israel doesn't repent, Israel will perish. But he's giving her more time. Giving her more opportunities. There's grace all over this. God will get his good fruit by hook or by crook. He'll always find another way without you or me. You, someone else. But he's still gathering a, a willing family back into his arms. We just need to ask, does that include me? And here, 
He's saying, will that include Israel? And in Romans chapter 11, we see the wonderful picture that Paul paints about Israel, saying that other branches have been grafted into Israel through Jesus to bear his fruit. That's us. Anyone here is Jewish by blood? We are saved and we are grafted into, into the same plant by his grace through Jesus. We get what they were given, what they had. We get that. We get to bear his fruit, mainly because Israel, in the most part, wasn't bearing his fruit. We're new branches that have been grafted in, and those outside of Israel are now invited in through Jesus to bear good fruit too. But also later on in Romans 11, we discover that Israel themselves always kind of get grafted back in again again. And there's this wonderful time when Jews return into Jesus as the Messiah, and we are seeing that today. Jews are turning to the Messiah, recognizing Jesus for who he is. It's wonderful. There's grace all over this, but that's because Jesus gave them more time. He said, just give me another year. Let me give us a fertilizer. Let's see what happens. Don't cut them down yet. Grace all over this. We are all destined to perish. It's the consequence of our turning away from him. But he gives us plenty of opportunity to discover him and find rescue. And even for Israel, who it could be argued have missed their chance. You could all easily sit back and do the paperwork and think they had their chance, lost it. Even Israel, God still has plans to bring them home, those that repent and acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. Praise God. Praise God. It's good news for everyone, Jews included. Everyone. Good news for all. And God wants his, God wants his humanity-wide family back. And he's doing everything to ensure we get the invite and the means to come back home. And it's just, just like I preached a, few, a couple of weeks ago talking about Jesus returning. If Jesus hasn't returned yet, it's because he's still got more people he wants to turn to him. Giving people time. If I wake up tomorrow morning, it's because God's not done with my time here on earth. And it's not my right to keep on living. It's his right to number my days. If he's given me an extra one, if I'm still here, I've therefore got at least one more day left for his glory. That's for all of us, isn't it? And so here's a question. But ask yourself this. Every morning when I wake up, will I fully appreciate the grace that is on me and therefore on others to bring in glory? What gets in the way of that? Every morning when I wake up, do I fully appreciate the grace that is on me and what gets in the way of that? None of us are on uh, are kind of above being on the receiving end of trials and afflictions, are we? I'm sure all of us in this room can tell stories about trials and afflictions we have gone through or we are going through. Very real. Now, God is not vindictive. He's not a meanie, as our friend Bridget says. God is not a meanie. It's always a helpful phrase. He's not at all. But nor does becoming his children give us automatic diplomatic immunity from what it means to still exist in this world with all its downsides. We're still here, and life still has its effects. But it does mean we get to know the God of all comfort who helps us in our afflictions. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You want to know what the Christian life is like? You look at 2 Corinthians chapter 1, you discover the Christian life is all about suffering, but also comfort. It's there, right in the middle of it. 
doesn't remove us from it. He helps us walk through it with all comfort because he's the father of all comfort, the God of all comfort. See, he's not aloof. He's not uncaring, but instead he comforts us in all our troubles so that we might shine for him in the midst of that darkness and comfort others in turn. What a wonderful, wonderful truth. So when it comes to this whole deserving and who deserves what, none of us are deserving of all the good that comes our way, <laughs> actually. To flip the question about who's deserving of bad things, who's deserving the good things, ultimately. To think we are owed all the good stuff, to, to, to think we deserve means to think we have qualities that make us worthy of something. That is thinking more highly of ourselves than we should, <laughs> ultimately. There's a, there's a lovely comic strip, Dennis the Menace, not our one, we've got Dennis and Nasher, haven't we? The US version, there's a US Dennis the Menace. There's a lovely little comic strip there where um, it's Dennis and his friend Joey, and they go to this lady who's another recurring character called Mrs. Wilson. And they, they, they go to her house. And on the way out, she gives them loads of cookies. And they, they leave her house with their hands full of cookies, Dennis and Joey. And Joey's like, I wonder what we did to deserve this. This is amazing. We deserve these cookies. What do we do to deserve this? And Dennis, this is brilliant, he says, Mrs. Wilson gives us cookies not because we're nice, but because she's nice. Any good that comes our way is not because we're good, it's because he's good. Amen? That's the God we get to know and we get to serve through Jesus. There is only one person who has been deserving of zero trauma. And that's Jesus. And yet, he willingly took on the ultimate trauma, the most horrendous of afflictions, dying on the cross for us, at the hands of murderous humanity. God breathing that horror in effectively that he might breathe new life into those of us who turn to him. That's where we find rescue. That's where we find where we can never perish. He took on trauma, the only person who was deserving of none of it, he took that on because he's good. And out of that, he gives us good things, including eternal life. Amen. So like I said at the beginning, getting our heads around this helps us in two ways. Firstly, it helps us break away from this notion of who deserves what, who does and doesn't deserve the blessings and the cursings of life. We don't deserve the good stuff, but he gives it to us because he's good. And we're all equally deserving as humans because of our sin of perishing but also therefore when you truly know him and you walk with him you get to walk through the blessed times with complete conscious gratitude and humility for all of it what a good father i have don't take the blessed moments for granted i know my faith can just slack off and get lazy when things are easy rather than being consciously grateful for it do you know what i mean I just walk through and go, yeah, all right, back to life as normal. It's not life as normal. You're getting good stuff from a good God. That's not normal. <laughs> He's pouring this upon you. Be grateful and think about it. Stephen, wake up. We get to walk through blessed times with conscious gratitude and humility, but we also get to walk through hard times with a very, very secure hope and joy and peace and comfort that we can only know and receive through him. So, if you don't know Jesus, just do you realize of the temporary <laughs> reprieve that Jesus is giving you right now to meet with him? Don't delay. Don't take that for granted. But if you do know Jesus, 
Do you relish the prospect of what another day can bring and what another day holds for you? The good and the bad and what that means. If you woke up this morning, he's not done with inviting you into what he has planned. The source of all good things is inviting you in to join in on his plans for others. Great, isn't it? That we might help other people break free from the mindset of who deserves what and they enter a new way of living that looks to the one who, who rescues us from what we do deserve, death, and gives us what we don't deserve, life. That's what it means to deserve. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you are a good God who bestows good things even though we don't deserve an ounce of it. We thank you that you're a good God who could have wiped his hands of us and going, do you know what, I'm done. But you don't. You made a way through yourself that we might live. We just, we have to stand in awe of that and celebrate you. Lord, may our conduct, our speech, our thoughts, our desires, our our whatever consumes us during the day, whatever we get involved in during the day, may it all reflect an utter gratitude for the blessings and the goodness you pour upon us and what you're doing for us, what you've done for us and what you will do for us. Help us to be just be more conscious of this, Lord. We thank you and we love you and you're amazing. Help us to do what we can in our human capacity to say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It'd be good not to just rush into some songs. We are going to sing in a moment, but it'd be good just to spend some time in communion. Just to reflect on the one who didn't deserve the cross. It's what we deserved, but he took it upon himself. We're just going to spend some time around the table with the bread and the wine. The bread's there. It's already broken up for you. The bowl's there to dip into the juice. Really just read from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 as we do that.